On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, is it a good idea to create understanding between people in this modern age when we like to scream at each other and not tolerate each other? Is it a good idea to bring in a mandatory world religions class into school so you learn what other people's beliefs are when you are still young and impressionable and then can understand where other people are coming from? It's a suggestion that's been put out there. What do you think? Is it a good idea? We'll talk about that. Also, Don Robertson joins us. One of the things on the agenda today, how What's the secret? How do we build up women's sports on International Women's Day? How do we build women's sports so that they are a self-sustaining, surviving, thriving professional entity? We'll talk about it. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Really interesting column I read the other day, which some of you are going to agree with the premise. Others will disagree, perhaps. Here it is. We don't exactly understand each other these days, which wouldn't normally be a massive issue because for time eternal, we have disagreed with people and dealt with it. These days, however, disagreement doesn't seem to be a cause to seek understanding of the other person's point of view or to sit down and convince them even why you're correct and try to win them over to your side through vigorous debate. It's cause instead to shout them down and shoot them down and demand that their point of view not be allowed in many cases, that we must cancel someone if we disagree. We think that they're offensive. We think they shouldn't be allowed to say those kind of things. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And one of the big areas for this is in the topic of religion. The question though is, and this is what the column got to, the question is, could we have a more civil discourse if we simply understood each other better and could we understand each other better if we learned about other people's beliefs way back when we were in school before we got to the point where our minds were all made up about everything and we knew we were right wholeheartedly and everyone else was absolutely wrong and didn't deserve to be heard. We're not talking about proselytizing, not talking about preaching, just offering educational knowledge to get to the point where We understand where a Jewish person is coming from if we're not Jewish or why a Muslim person thinks the way they do if we're not Muslim or why a Christian person feels strongly about certain things if we're not a Christian. I want to bring in Dr. David Haskell. He's a professor of religion and culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, David, thanks for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. It's my pleasure. This, to me, uh, and I may be on the minority on this one, but this seems like a pretty basic concept. We don't necessarily all understand each other, so let's try to do that, and let's do it back at a point when maybe we haven't had our opinions fully formed yet so we can be a little more understanding. Is that too simplistic? Well, no, I mean, I don't think it's simplistic, Scott. It's uh, the notion that you learn about something, and then it is no longer foreign, and then you can appreciate it more. I mean, there's good sense in that. And what the fellow writing the article that you were discussing was was talking about was advocating for a world religions course. Now, already in grade 11, students can take a world religions course. So the option is there. So I'm not sure if, if he was saying, well, he was saying that there was one in Manitoba that he had helped design. And, and then he was saying that he recommends it for other places. So Ontario already has one. So insofar as someone taking that course would be able to have a better understanding of other religions and then maybe have more tolerance for other people. Well, that may be the case. I, I was wondering if he was trying to say that we should mandate it. 
That's what I was getting at. That's what I was thinking that you, you must take it as a one, even a one semester course or something just to expose you to other ideas. Right. And, and so I have a little bit more trouble with that. And the reason, the reason I have trouble with that is if you are getting kids, you're forcing kids to take a course in world religions, I'm not sure that it's going to have the effect you want. And, and let me just kind of do a thought experiment here. So we know within the Catholic school system, which is now publicly funded here in Ontario, students take uh, religion courses from elementary school all the way up into high school. Now, those particular courses, they also have this world religion course in grade 11, but these other courses are dedicated to the Catholic faith. So they're, they're taking those courses. But when you look at the research, uh, when you look at the research that asks Catholic students about their knowledge of Christianity, and especially basic Bible knowledge, on average, they're no better than Canadian, Canadian students who attended non-Catholic public schools. So all those years of instruction on Christianity either mm. didn't stick or it wasn't adequate. And I, I would argue that it probably didn't stick. And what we... What we can guess, at least from the psychological theories, is that if you're not really personally interested in a subject, you don't really carry it out of the classroom with you as you go on in your life. And like, for example, within the Catholic system, again, it's mostly parents who are nominally Catholic these days who really don't practice in their home. And that same indifference is passed on to the kids. And so as a result, when the kids take these courses, it just doesn't stay with them because they don't see it as personally valuable. So if we mandated a world religions course, I think you're going to see much the same result. Would it be that, okay, now I know that we're not talking about apples and apples here. We're talking apples and oranges. So people don't have to all write in and tell me that I don't get it. I, I understand these are different things, but we do have human sexuality courses that I believe are mandated in school that talk about different types of things that not, not every student in school is going to be transgender or not every student in school is going to be whatever. And yet we say, but you must take that because that will give you a broader understanding of what's going on. And, and again, any kind of education is going to have some kind of efficacy if only to introduce you to the actual terms and, and some of the basic concepts. But what the fellow who wrote this article was arguing was that it was going to lead to greater tolerance. And I, I don't know that his argument can go that far. In fact, I mean, if we looked at it from another perspective, uh, we could almost say that it could lead to less tolerance. And, and I'm paraphrasing here. When, when he says, he, the way that he worded it, and I'm, again, I'm going from memory, he's saying that uh, if someone takes a world religion course, it could dispel misunderstandings and it'll lead to greater tolerance. And what I wonder is, if you, if you truly teach all the empirical evidence, all the historical evidence on every faith, is it always going to lead to greater tolerance? And what I mean by that is, um, there are some things within certain faiths that uh, are going to be are going to make people like that religion less. Mm. And, and unless you're willing to hide those things away, uh, you can't guarantee that it's going to make someone more tolerant. I'm being a bit vague. So, uh, More broadly, David, do you believe that there is a sense of religious ignorance? And I don't mean ignorance as in like offensiveness. I just mean a lack of knowledge about world religions. Do you believe that's on the rise? 
Uh, well, yeah, for, for sure there is. Uh, and it really begins with what would have been the, the vestigial or the traditional faith of most Canadians. So let's say that uh, between 60 and 70 percent of Canadians are coming from a background that would have been Christian at one point. Their knowledge of that faith, the faith that was part of their background, is, is really abysmal. And the, the reason that we should worry about that doesn't just extend to the notions of whether we can be civil with one another, but even trying to understand literature becomes compromised. Uh, some, of the, some of the older works from Shakespeare through Chaucer and you know, moving forward, it, they depend on a certain knowledge of the biblical text. And even in that regard, students are losing out. So, and, and of course, when we talk about things like uh, the other religions that are, we've got a very diverse society now, there's really uh, even less knowledge there. So, so you're, you're right to say that uh, it's a problem and that the problem is growing. And the reason it's growing most is because even the historical faith of the people who are Canadian, uh, they, they don't recognize where they've come from. And yet, um, I would suggest that if somebody ever did come forward, if a school board trustee ever came forward and said, my proposal is that we do have this mandatory world religions course to help understanding, if you believe that that would do it, religion does seem to be still the the third rail that I, I think that trustee would probably be shouted down very quickly that people would say, no, this is not going to happen. I, I don't believe that there is a broad social appetite for this unless I'm missing something. No, I, again, people just don't think, and th I mean, the surveys back this up. Most people, uh, or sorry, let me be more precise. Increasingly, the largest group in terms of religious belief or in terms of faith matters are people who say that they have no interest in religion. So for those people, personally, they don't see a use for it. So it'd be hard to convince them that uh, having another course dedicated, a mandated course to it, would be a good idea. Th those same people would probably say, you know, I'd rather that my kids focus more on math and science at this point, something that, and this is, these would be their words, something that's more important. But when we go back, let's go back to 2001 for a minute, and I know we're now 20 years away, but on September 11, 2001, was the entire, well, not immediately, but shortly after, was the entire discussion not, Muslims are not all terrorists, you should understand that, and somehow that, I don't know, that had got, and, and obviously that's the case, but that was something that I guess some people still believe would things, I'm not talking about what happened with 9-11, but the fallout the follow-up would that would something like that if this had been a course in school not have not been necessary because we would have all said of course we know that not all muslims are terrorists we but somehow that seemed to have to be said at that time yeah well it, to, to fill in the gap with i suppose the narrative that was coming out but but now we've aired on the other side as well uh we've gotten to a point where the the warts of a religion are swept under the rug, or that's kind of a mixed metaphor, but the, the, then the dirty side of a religion is swept under the rug. And, and this isn't any better either, because we refuse to teach uh, the things that, we might, that might make a particular group look bad. You know, now, this isn't always the case with, with Christianity. I think that uh, 
within media, the popular culture, and even in those courses that teach on world religions, Christianity, um, people feel free to point out all its warts. There's no doubt about that. But the other religions uh, definitely are handled with kid gloves. And while I think that all religions should be handled with respect, I think that we need to, in order to be honest, and in order to move toward true understanding, we need to be willing to, to talk about all the issues, good and bad, and get the full picture. And there, and I know you've got to run, uh, and there is where I think maybe one of the huge challenges of this, what could be a really good idea, potentially, come in, is who designs the curriculum and what gets included and what are you allowed to say about this religion, that religion, any religion, because uh, everybody in those religions are only going to want the positive sides of their religion talked about rather than, as you described them, the warts. That's right. And and this would be my concern again. What what value is a course that really doesn't teach you the truth? It's a fascinating topic. Uh, Dr. David Haskell, always love having you on. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. Yeah, thank you. It is, uh, it's a really interesting idea. And again, I mean, there are some people who are going to say, you know, a, a, a course a mandatory course about world religions would expose people to ideas and thoughts and beliefs that they didn't know about. And maybe it would help them understand someone who was their neighbor that they look at and don't really get why they wear something or do something on a certain day or whatever. Others will say, as David just pointed out, and I think it's a fair comment, um, you run the real risk here of uh, just creating something that's even more confusing because what do you include in a course? Can you include the flaws or the criticisms or must it only be the positive side? And then is it really true in some cases or in all cases? It, it, it's a really interesting idea, but as I said, in describing it, it, you know, it still can be, especially in the public system, the third rail, but interesting idea. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson, as we do every Monday at this time, the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys hockey team, the guy behind ComChoice Realty, the man behind a million different things going on in Dundas, Ontario, Canada. 2014 citizen of the year in that town. And as I say over and over again, soon to be again, if we have anything to do with it, how are you? Good, Scott. How are you? Uh, you know, fine. Good. Uh, it, it was, it was, I only saw the daylight for a few seconds today, but it actually looked pleasant out today. So I'm, you know, I'm holding out great hope that we are approaching spring and, and daylight savings comes this week. Yep. Things, yep, uh, things are good. If it stays like this for a month and then turns into spring, I'd be happy. I suspect we'll see more snow. There will always be, yes, there's always going to be one more big snowstorm. That's always the case. Happens every single time. As soon as we've just decided that the snow is done, we get hammered with one. But um, it's the reason I don't put out the garden furniture just yet. I'm not that optimistic. <laughs> Pool cover's not off. Not yet. Well, I couldn't if I wanted to, unless I took a blowtorch out there. It's a, there's probably about seven inches of ice on top of the cover. So, um, that would be difficult. We, we know when it's time to release the pool cover, when the first dog steps there and sinks. <laughs> oh yeah. It's gone soft. Open it up. Yeah. I, you know, Don, this summer, I, I think last summer was 
to some degree for a lot of people. And, and look, I, I'm, I think I'm not speaking just for myself last summer because we had been through the start of COVID and everything, but it was just getting going. I, I think last, last year, people were really, really eager for the summer this year. I think people are losing their minds ready for the summer to come along. I really do. Well, it's going to be so nice to be outside and, I'm sure we'll still be social distancing. I'm sure a bunch of these things aren't going to leave us anytime soon, but it is a lot more palatable to be able to go outside and have a barbecue and, you know, some freshy and kind of enjoy the weather. And, you know, you don't have to worry about slipping on the roads if you're going for a walk. It's golf was back last year. That was kind yep. of helpful. And there's, there's just a lot to look forward to, including multiple vaccinations and, yeah, I think I think this summer is going to be a lot more optimistic than last summer was. Although I'm not sure how many people were entirely pessimistic last summer, thinking it would pass. Oh no, I agree. I agree. But I, I just talk think of that the second wave was a load of yeah. crap, and but they were right on all counts. But I just think that having been cooped up all winter now, the the demand oh. and and you know, I mean, you're the real estate agent, but I just keep hearing and we keep seeing evidence that. The, for now, anyway, the move has been find a house with a backyard or at least somewhere you can be outside, maybe in the suburbs. And I'll tell you something I saw today, and Don, I've never seen this. Now, again, I'm not the real estate agent you are. I've never seen this before, though. There's a house in our neighborhood that was up for sale, and it's got a nice backyard, and it's a nice house. Uh, and it was up for sale probably two weeks ago. And I looked today to see if it had sold because I, you know, I just checked realtor.ca and the listing price has gone up. I've only ever seen houses that have dropped in price when they've been up for a sale for a while. This one, the listing price has gone up from when it was first listed, which only can tell me they must be just besieged by interest. I don't think there's a realtor out there if they're prepared to be come clean with you that can tell you they totally understand the market today. Uh, I have seen uh, properties taken off the market, relisted for a higher price and sell within five days. Now you figure that one out. And if that's what's happened across the street, then you know what, it, 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 may, well, it may well happen. Does it make any sense? Absolutely not. If it doesn't sell in the first 10 days, the, the last thing normal thinking people would do would be to increase the price so we can sell it. It'll be interesting to see and you, you'll have a bird's eye view of seeing how quickly Maybe. that works. But I just wonder it has worked in the past and it doesn't make any sense to me, but neither does what's going on in the market today. So, you know, go figure it out. 46 yeah. years of doing this and people ask me, well, you've seen this before. You know what? I thought I'd seen it all, but Boy, this is a new one. It uh, it's a head scratcher, without question. I just I got thinking today with the weather turning nicer on the weekend, and then this. I just I just started wondering. You know what? Do they feel like we're about to see another huge surge of interest for people looking to get a property that has a bit of land in the back, like a backyard in the back where people can be outside? And so, hey, let's just take advantage while it hasn't sold yet. We'll see. You're right. We'll see what happens with this one. But I'd never seen that before. So. Uh, Don, today is International Women's Day, and I want to ask you about this because we, I mean, right now there are, there is the WNBA, 
there are other women's leagues around in different sports. There is the NWHL, but there's also, you know, a talk of one unified women's hockey league started. There's always talk about women's sports and how can they grow? How do we get the women's soccer league to grow? How do we get women's basketball to grow? All these things. What does a what does women's sports? Because clearly, and, and in case anyone thinks that I'm I'm making unfounded allegations, the attendance, the money, everything doesn't approach the major leagues for men's sports. That's just reality. So what what do women's sports have to do to really gain a foothold with the population and really grab onto interest of people and really become and it's almost insulting to say it, and I don't mean to be, but I think it's accurate, more than a niche sport in a lot of these cases. What, what do they have to do to really make sure that sports fans, not just women, sports fans pay attention to them? Well, I kind of feel I'm set up, but that's the only way you can ask the question. Um, I, If I were running the women's, the new women's pro hockey league or uh, a soccer league, I would look at a couple of things. One of the things I would look at are the successful sports that women participate in at a high level. And if you look at golf, um, it's a premier sport on the women's side. If you um, golf, you've got uh, tennis that's on very similar footing to men's sports. So if I were if I were going to try and um, simulate the success of successful women sports and recognize, I would look at how they're doing it. And as I say this, I go, you know, sadly, both those sports are more individual than they are team oriented. But I find I find the sweet spot. And I'll tell you, I said this 40 years ago. Well, anyway, if you get a competitive midget or Bantam hockey game and both teams are going to battle it out for the Ontario Championship, it fills arenas across the entire province. Now, do those Wee teams or do those Bantam teams that Morgan Firestone or JL Greitmeyer or the Beverly Community Centre do that throughout the year? Of course they don't. But when, the, when you amp it up, and it's competitive. It doesn't matter what sport it is. It's a lot of fun to watch, and it's exciting. So how you instill that, I don't think I profess to totally understand. But I would, I would absolutely study the sports that have had success and are considered, you know, to be almost the equal of the men's sports. And I, I don't have the answer to why golf without draw, uh, women's golf. But women's golf is very respectable. And it's, it's a lot of fun to watch. I mean, I, I don't mind watching women's golf one bit because I can, I, you know, I can kind of relate to it. I can't relate to yesterday's golf tournament and that great big Galuka won it hitting 370 yards. I mean, I can hit the ball 370 yards where he lands it. It's just going to take me three shots to get there, yeah. or, from a, or or from landed a, on the or landed on the cart path and let it roll. <laughs> yeah. 
right? So, um, but I think that's what women's sports have to do. I think they have to go to smaller venues. I think it would, in my mind, it would be a mistake. I would put it in a building you could fill. I would, I, I wouldn't think that the, and, and I think it's, I think it's baby steps. I think it's foolhardy to think that you can put it in Scotiabank Place um, and expect the same kind of atmosphere. But if you put it in, again, I'll use our building, Jail Greitmeyer, the Mountain Arena, the Home of the Steelhawks. You do that and start putting 50 and 1,500 people in, 2,000 people in, creating a demand. Then you then you play special games that uh, cops call a CM. But to put them in larger venues and expect the same reaction as you would get from the Toronto Maple Leafs, it's it's not, it's it's not going to be successful. So you have to bite the bullet, create a demand for the tickets, be competitive. And I don't know I don't know how they go about doing that. I you know it's it's quite clear that soccer. And, um, well, soccer is probably a little bit different than hockey. Hockey doesn't have the pool of premier players quite yet that the National Hockey League do, because I don't think there's enough money in it to start importing. And I'm, I'm really out on a limb, but I think I'm right. I, I always think I'm right. Who am I kidding? But I, but you know, they're not bringing, they're not bringing players in from Russia. They're not bringing players in from, Yugoslavia, Finland, Sweden to play in the pro league like the National Hockey League does. And I think the reason they're not doing that is because the finances aren't there. But if you start with smaller venues and you build success, then sponsors will buy because people are interested and you create a demand. And I think to to think that you're going to start a league and just wonder why it's not at the National Hockey League level, you're crazy. Because you look at some of the expansion teams um, in the National Hockey League, they didn't start with full buildings, all of them. They've had to build the brand, they've had to build the product, and they've had to win. Uh, yeah, owners and, have and look, pockets. Don, Don go, go back a little ways. I mean, it, when, when the NHL first expanded uh, back in the late 60s into the early 70s, and then especially when it expanded again, there were a lot of teams that were really, and a lot of players there that were not very good. I mean, it was, and we're talking about the men's, the NHL. I mean, it was, there, there were guys there that should not have been playing in that league. Now, everybody who's playing in the NHL can skate, everybody can shoot, everybody can, they're not all stars, but they, you know, they can all play. You've built that because you now also have a pool where, you're, you know, you're getting Austin Matthews from Arizona and you're getting people from everywhere. Um, it, I think you're right. I think that if if you if you were to start a league, I'd love to see the women's hockey league. First of all, what's happening right now? And for people who don't know, there's there were two leagues. They were competing leagues. It made no sense. They should, and I think they're trying. The players are trying to work together to make one great league. Start with the original six. Put the six teams in the same six places that even if you want to, that you had the original six NHL teams and make it so that every team is loaded with great players, that you don't have a huge drop-off and build. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. That's just hockey. I mean, basketball, there's a certainly a bigger pool. Um, soccer, there is certainly a bigger pool. But I... I, I, I <clears throat> I want it to succeed. You, you know, we've got three, more than three, but three amazing women's hockey players in this area who play on the national team, Renata Fast and Sarah Nurse and Laura Fortino. I would love it 
for it to succeed. And we're, again, we're just talking about hockey for players like them to have somewhere where they can play and make a living at this. The problem, if there is a problem, and I, clearly I think there is a problem and it's more time and more complicated than we have right here is I think you do have to start with modest, a modest target and build and let it get great and then build when it's great. But I, you know, like it, my other question, Don, and, and uh, like that, I believe that. But my other thing is, where are the fans all the time? And, and this is one that that I, I've always struggled with, and that is, we hear oftentimes people say, especially because I work in the media, you don't cover, and we do, but you don't cover women's sports, or the media doesn't cover women's sports. And to some degree, that can be correct at times. But then, when you hold a game sometimes the fans are there, but oftentimes they're not go to a Mac basketball game. The men's team will have a lot of fans, the women's team less. Where are the fans? And this part, I, this is one thing that I don't really understand. And I don't, I don't quite get how you make that jump, how you get it. So people will show up and will be in the building. And especially the people who consistently say we have to support women's sports. I agree with them. So where are you supporting women's sports? That that to me is a is an obstacle I'm not quite sure I understand. Well, uh, a lot of the people that, that that say first of all you have to support women's sports. It's easy to sit on a keyboard and say that. Uh, I I've learned this a long time ago. Uh, when people tell me things, I, I look at them and say, "I'm going to watch your feet. I don't care about your opinion. I'm going to watch your feet." And see where it carries you. If you only want to talk about it and you only want to be critical of it and you're not prepared to offer any answers, but you're but you know everything. When was the last time you went to a game? And I'm you know, when I say did you go to a, a women's hockey game, I'm not talking about a token game. I'm talking about you going and supporting the sport. So to touch on your observation, which is bang on. Back in the 70s, some of the expansion of the National Hockey League teams, you know, they were drawing eight, 9,000 people. Now, and you talk about people that shouldn't have been in the league. Well, the WHA was um, wobbling around at different places at that point in time. You know, Cleveland had an NHL team that failed. So the caliber of hockey, because of the WHA and the National Hockey League, was, was not as strong as it is today. So if the, if the women's league want to start, if I were doing it and they haven't asked me to, but you know, I did start a minor pro team um, in Brantford that you're familiar with, and you had to create a demand. It was very difficult. And one of the other things that's created that challenge more so now than any other time is the attention span of a lot of people under 30 years old is about the same as a gnat. Right, they're on TikTok, which I, I don't even know how to hook up to, but Instagram, Facebook, all the different things you have to make it exciting, and you have to create that demand. I'll tell you, it's a challenge. The Dundas, Real McCoys, and the Hamilton Steelhawks have players that are played in the National Hockey League. If that had been the case back in the seventies in Dundas and Hamilton, there'd have been eighteen hundred to two thousand people in the building. Darren Hadar plays for me. He's, he was voted in the American Hockey League Hall of Fame. The guy is a legend in Milwaukee and Chicago. 
people don't know what they're missing. The, but that's, I don't complain about that. We just provide the product. But how do you create the interest? In women's hockey, I think it can be done, but I think it's got to be done in, in, in venues that are two to 3,000 people sell it out. Yeah, and then build and build. That. And if you can, like, if there's if there's a women's professional team in Toronto, and I don't know what the Mastercard Center holds, I've never been in the building. Perhaps you have, or the old Maple Leaf Gardens, Madame um, um, Center. Um, I think Ryerson played there. I think it yep. holds three thousand yep. people. If you think that's the venue, then go ahead. I don't think it is. I don't think there are enough people in downtown downtown Toronto. They give a rat's behind about women's hockey right now. But if you could put some of the absolute very best women's hockey players in Cambridge and let the community get behind it as their team, then that's what you start doing and you start building from there. There's no shame in having a very strong women's league that draws 2,500 to 4,000 people. And when the demand uh, generates itself, you go to bigger buildings. Then you go to the building in Brampton that uh, that just had an ECHL team and an OHL team that didn't work. Now, the Brampton's probably a bad example. But you don't jump right to Cops Coliseum. No, and, and I'll no, say one go. thing. we got to go to a break. Um, 2015, some people will remember this. We're going to talk basketball for a second. But when Canada was in the Pan Am Games basketball, women's basketball finals, Kia Nurse was on that team. They played it at the Madame Centre. You just described the old Maple Leaf Gardens. And the place was jammed and the atmosphere was amazing. When McMaster played for the national championship in women's basketball, it was at Madame Center. It wasn't quite full, but it was very full and the atmosphere was terrific. And you couldn't watch those games and not think, I would, I would come and watch this again. I would do this again, and it's something you can build on the uh, and I hope I hope lessons are learned because I agree with you. I think that that if you if you put a great product on the floor and you put it in a place where you can have great atmosphere and it doesn't get totally swallowed up and, and look the Hamilton Bulldogs are in the exact same position with First Ontario Center it's not just the women's thing if you do those things I think there's an opportunity to really grow it um, I just I hope that I I really hope that people are listening in all of women's sports because they do deserve to have their league they do deserve to have a pro league they do deserve to make a living but you can't build it on guilting people to say you should go you have to build it like anything else on saying i want to go that was so good i want to go again and there are ways to do that and i I just i hope the people behind this are are really paying attention because it, it, it needs to happen you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml Don, there was a, and I, you and I may have talked about this on the show last week. I can't recall, or maybe it was someone else, but uh, two players from the Washington Capitals got themselves in trouble this week. One of them is a guy who runs around and bashes into people, Tom Wilson, who's had a number of suspensions. One of them is a guy who runs around and bashes into people, though not quite as much. But somehow, because of his superstar status, has managed to avoid suspensions for the most part. Uh, Tom Wilson got seven games for a hit that caught part of a guy's head. And I'm not arguing that it shouldn't have been a suspendable offense. It should have. Alex Ovechkin pitchforks a guy in the nuggets with intent, like to really stick the blade of his stick in somewhere where it shouldn't be. 
and he gets a five thousand dollar fine. Are are you okay with the two sets of rules, one for stars and one for non stars? Well, um, it's an interesting question, which you always have. You know, public vasectomies are generally frowned upon <laughs> uh, on the ice. Um, but I, I've said this multiple times, and I'll draw a comparison before I give you my answer. When Marty McSorley whacked, I think it was Donald Brashear, on the melon with his stick and was suspended indefinitely, I told people that wanted my opinion, the National Hockey League should be very careful because they all knew Marty McSorley was retiring. So they could set an example. My concern was that what happens when one of their superstars does exactly the same thing and he has another 10 years to give the National Hockey League. So be careful setting a precedent with a guy that's leaving the game. So... um, I believe that the National Hockey League look at how they generate their income back to money. You know me, it's always about money. And does the National Hockey League get hurt financially by Tom Wilson not playing for seven games? No. And if you extrapolate that out, if they were playing an 82-game schedule, would that hit have been worth 13 games or 12 games mathematical genius i'm not but you know what i'm saying like they're talking about seven games for the intent i always think you have to put it into proportion for the length of the season that you're playing so that's like a maybe a 12 13 game suspension if they're playing yeah. the whole schedule but my point is alex ovechkin it's very expensive to take one of your premier athletes out of the game it, it hurts viewership, it hurts uh, marketing and everything else. So you don't have to be Albert Einstein to say, we can afford to suspend Tom Wilson for seven games. We can't afford to suspend Al- uh, Alex Ovechkin. But he, he, can, spend, he can pay a $5,000 fine. And, and by the way, for those that think that's a puny fine, it was driven by the Players Association. Yep. It, yep. it was driven down by the players. That, that's the maximum. That's the maximum you not, can give to a player. Yep. Not the league. So I does that weigh into anything? I mean, do they sit there and go, all right, if we lose a batch kid for five games, that's that's not good for business. Tom Wilson, people can live with him. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to sort this out. And it's not gonna change. It's 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 just the way they do business. And remember, the National Hockey League is a very successful business. Okay, so you're correct with that, but let me throw another wrinkle into it then. Alex Ovechkin plays in the same division as Sidney Crosby, plays in the same division as the New York Rangers, as the New Jersey Devils, and the Philadelphia Flyers, three really big market NHL teams with huge fan bases. Alex Ovechkin not being suspended could lead to, and will lead to, probably, well, three of those teams not making the playoffs, or potentially, because right now they are four, five, six, seven in the standings. So by letting Alex Ovechkin play, potentially, if he plays against some of these other teams, he could cost them points that could keep one of these big, big markets. So I get what you're saying for sure about 
having Alex Ovechkin as a superstar sitting is going to hurt your business case. But he could also hurt your business case by not sitting him for an infraction, if you get my point, that he committed that a, a normal grunt player would have absolutely received a suspension for. You know, everything, the, the finances of the league, it's not just game by game. It's a big picture thing. So I just look at this and I think I get, I mean, I, I understand the short-term thinking, the short-sighted thinking of why you don't suspend a guy like this. Uh, but I think it can come back to bite you in the end, and then you know you, you you lose money anyway. You should you should just do the right thing, because either way it's going to affect you. Either way it's going to affect well, you. First of all, I think the National Hockey League think they did the right thing. So it's not about your standards or my standards. The National Hockey League thinks they did the right thing. They're in a business. So when you talk about all those other comparable teams and the owner that calls up um, whoever's run the Rangers, I don't know if Dolan still owns them or not, but when he calls up Gary Bettman and says, we're, play, we're playing Washington the next two games, you sit and Bettman sits behind his uh, chair and listens to it and says, okay. And I don't know who the, the difference maker is on the New York Rangers this week. And Batman says, so if your star player does exactly the same thing versus this guy comparing Tom Wilson to a, another guy in the Rangers and their premium superstar, do you want your star sat out? Because we'll bring it up in the board meeting, and if that's the way you want to do it, we'll run it that way across the board. And you know the guy from New York's going, well, I don't want my guy, star guy sat out. Oh, really? So you want to pick and choose. So it's all fair in love and war. Like the premier teams, whether it's Boston or anybody else, they want that on balance thing, or it wouldn't take place, Scott, because the owners and the governors run the league. They have to be aware. This can't be a surprise to anybody. So if you, you can't have it both ways, to use a real estate analogy, I can't sell your house for $1.2 million and find you one of equal value in Dundas at $570,000 because you're the only guy buying the cheap or the inexpensive house now. You, you can't buy the only low-value house and sell high. So the National Hockey League have to look at their superstars and everybody below that and accept this. And if they don't like the suspensions anymore, it will change. Yeah, I, I look, I... I, 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 you're right. Of course. I mean, you are right about what the NHL is thinking and they want their star players in here. Here's where this thing could blow up in their face. That's besides the example I already gave. And next time Washington plays Boston and it was against Boston that this happened next time Washington plays Boston, the guy that Sydney, that, um, Alex Ovechkin tried to shish kebab. If he drops the gloves and drags Ovechkin into a fight and Ovechkin breaks his hand, punching him in the helmet or something. That fight probably doesn't happen if this has been taken care of by the league. You know, these things, these things always dawn seem to have a way of coming back to naturally sorting themselves out. And boy, the NHL is going to look foolish if all of a sudden Ovechkin, next time he plays, either gets in a fight or is the guy who he did this to decides to take a run at him and drives him into the boards and knocks him out for three weeks. Um, you know, I, again, I go yeah, back to my point. I think if you do the right thing, you're better off the thing that you know to be equal and fair and right. But I, I know what you're saying. There's no historical value 
there's no historical evidence that they're going to change what they do. They think, Scott, in my mind, they think they're doing the right thing. If that's one of if that's one of the um, things that comes out of it, is Ovechkin drops a glove, smashes his knuckle on the guy's helmet, then so be it. That's they would say that's part of the game. See, there's no tough guys left. Like Don Cherry's right. There, there, there's no guys left to prevent no. guys from going after your superstars, and this is one of the fallouts of it. I mean, is the hockey better? Is it more skilled? Could Mark Juris and Darren Hadar play in the National Hockey League today? Of course they could. Could they when they were in their prime? No, they couldn't. It, it, it's an interesting balance, but when you take the tough guy out of the game, then you've removed a lot of components, and when you suspend people like this, you, you've decided how you want the game to work. So if a veteran gets hurt, it's, it just happens to be a, you know, a byproduct of how they've decided to hand out suspensions, in my mind. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, a quick question for you. The Toronto Blue Jays have played eight spring training games so far this year. Big, exciting team, young guys, signings, all the rest. Uh, what's their record after eight games? Well, three days ago, they hadn't lost. They were 2-0-1. But because it seems to be a secret on radio and TV, I don't know. Yeah, that, that, thank you. That's uh, They're 4-3-1, but it's regardless, I don't know that there's a single person listening that probably could have told you that. And if they are... Uh, they are absolute super fans because you're right. They're they're. I, I'm trying to figure out why in a year when the Blue Jays have built what we're told is going to be a really exciting young team that should contend, that the company that owns them that also owns a bunch of media outlets would seemingly go out of their way to try and keep them under a bushel. I just don't get it. Of all the years... Well, I, I mean, um, Rogers owned the Blue Jays, and they know far more about marketing than I do. And me. And I don't think there's one lesson they're teaching me when it comes to marketing the Dundas Real McCoys or Com Choice Realty that I can extract from looking like you're ready to explode and be what you have been in the past and deciding to keep it a secret. If this works, boy, it's there's genius. a lot of people in marketing have a <laughs> lot to learn by keeping the <laughs> lid on the best kept secret around and saying, surprise, here we are. They spend like 12 gazillion dollars on a guy that can hit the ball and they don't want it on the radio. And when it is on the radio this year, Scott, it's going to be simulcast. Now, I love Dan Schulman who lives in Barrie and is a local guy and may be one of the premier baseball announcers on radio or television in North America, obviously, or the world, but he won't do it just justice. Like Tom and Jerry could paint a picture like Picasso for driving around in the country, which I spend a lot of time doing, listen to the blue Jays, most, you know, I'm a band, I'm a bandwagon guy. When they're playing well, I'm going to listen more than when I'm not. But they could paint a Picasso of a baseball game 
Now they're going to simulcast it on a company that has does very well. Like to cut out radio is like deciding that your 23rd player on the roster, if you cut his salary or somebody else's salary or collectively $400,000 out, you can still market the team the way it should be. Boy, if this works, they'll get marketing company of the year. To me, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, it's a tough one to me. And again, it's with people who would be paying attention right now because you're still stuck in your house and spring training and the hype and everything. Oh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm boy. just a little bit confused by this one and don't quite understand. And, um, but disappointed because the, again, this, I can think back, Don, I, I, I was thinking about this the other day. Now we're not at, we're not at opening day yet, but I can think back to opening day when, uh, I was in university and Sil Campusano was supposed to be taking over center field for Lloyd Mosby. And that's how far back we go, 1987, 88, something in there. But, th- I mean, there's a name. Some people won't even remember Sil Campusano. But because of spring training, or the year that Rob Ducey, the Canadian guy, had had such an amazing spring training that he was now supposed to be the big star in the outfield and was going to take one of those spots. And it was all because spring had created such an unbelievable buzz that everybody was talking about this team. And I'm telling you, we're not at opening day yet, but it seems like we're on a path to saying when opening day rolls around, people are going to have to be reminded that it's starting. And when they do, they're going to tune in for their first game and go, who's that guy? Because they haven't even seen these games. I don't get it. I don't get it. I, I, you know, you're spending all this money on salaries now with George Springer and everyone else. It just, we got to run. I just, I, I fail to understand how you don't hype the heck out of this thing this year, but. If it, if it works, it will be, they will be marketing geniuses. The Scott Radley show. Weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.